0: Well, everyone loves a good sandwich, but not everyone knows where the word sandwich comes from, and uh, it's humble beginnings. Uh, It is a handheld-sized piece of meat, lettuce, and sauce between two slices of bread, as you all know, Um, but what you probably don't know is that the beloved sandwich Uh, is named after one of the most unqualified and incompetent and unvirtuous people in British history, a man by the name of John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. John Montague, who lived from 1718 to 1792, uh, married a noblewoman, uh, and uh, her name was Dorothy Thane, and he did so so that he could pass on the title of Earl Uh, to the the fifth generation, but he was not devoted to her. He was an immoral man. He kept multiple mistresses, uh, including uh, one Martha Ray, with whom he had as many as nine children out of wedlock. Um, He once, trying to insult the famous actor Samuel Foote, said this to him. He said, I've often wondered what catastrophe would uh, bring you to your end, but I think that you must suffer uh, either... You will die of the pox or of the halter. In other words, uh, you as an actor in living your lifestyle, you will either die of a disease or you will be hanged. But without missing a beat, the witty actor replied, My lord, that will depend on one of two contingencies, whether I embrace your lordship's mistress or your lordship's principles. In other words, if I hug her, I'll get a disease, and if I live like you, I'll end up hanged. The only reason Montague wasn't hanged for uh, his licentiousness is because he was so well-connected. He was uh, connected through his family, being a nobleman. Um, His near-criminal negligence of his duties should have seen him fired, but instead of that, he kept being moved from one position of authority to another position of authority, uh, making a hash of those things wherever he went. His leadership honors included serving as the first Lord of the Admiralty in the Royal Navy. Very prestigious position. He was so bad at it that they moved him and appointed him as the Royal Ambassador to Madrid. Uh, Then he became the Secretary of State. Then he was Postmaster General. And all of these prestigious positions were completely wasted on a man who was so lazy and incompetent. Uh, Someone once said of his career, seldom has any man held so many offices and accomplished so little. Now, he was most famous in his day for the Sandwich Islands being named after him, if you know the Sandwich Isles, although they were not named after him because he found them, but simply because, again, he was well-connected and he was very good friends with Robert Cook, uh, Captain Cook, who did find them and named it after his buddy. So that's where the... The sandwich aisles come from. Today, of course, he's most famous for um, the lunch that, he, that is named after him. Uh, and this meal took his name as a direct result from his gambling addiction. He would sit at gambling tables for so long and go for so many hours without eating that his servants would worry about him. And so he would send him off to, and just tell them, just bring the the, the meat and the greens and the sauce and just stick it between bread and just hand it to me. And he would, he would gamble with one hand and eat his lunch with the other hand. And uh, this became popular among other gamblers sitting at the tables, and they would say to their servants, uh, get me the same as sandwich. And that's where that meal was named for sandwich. The term stuck. Well, what we learned from John Montague, the fourth earl of sandwich, is that getting into leadership because of family connections can result in bad people being in charge. And this is exactly what we see happen with Gideon's son, aptly named Abimelech, which means my father is king. So turn your Bibles to Judges, the days that the Judges ruled Israel in chapter 9. And this is a a little saga within Judges that many people aren't familiar with. It's kind of a strange happening um, that follows Gideon's judgeship. Let me just remind you that as we went through Gideon's life, Passage by passage, we saw that he had a wobbly start and a worthy run and a woeful finish. That wobbly start of his is God calls him to deliver his people uh, from the Midianite oppression. And he's, you know, hiding in the winepress. And then he says, well, how will I know? And can you do me a sign with the fleece? And okay, that was good, but can you do it the other way around? And, and he's just, he's, he's not like the man of faith that we know him later to be. But then he, after his wobbly start, he has a worthy run. And he delivers Israel. You know, he has just his little force of of men that deliver Israel from the the Midianites and gives God glory for that. Um, He even turns down the offer of a monarchy. They they were going to make him the first king of Israel. And he turns that down saying, no, I will not rule over you and my son or my grandson, but uh, Yahweh will rule over you. But then he kind of had this woeful finish as we saw where he um, asked for the gold from the people that he then used to make himself wealthy build a house a multiplying number of wives have you know dozens and dozens of kids and living like a king and he made an ephod um, this instrument of worship which eventually tempted all of Israel to worship that and that was kind of the the tarnish on his legacy yes he had great faith in Yahweh for many years as he delivered Israel but he ended up you know, not finishing strong. And so we've learned some some um, lessons from that. Now, of his 70 sons, um, from his many wives, there was only one whose name we are actually told. And that's because of how significant he is now in the narrative. And he is the one that was an illegitimate child born out of wedlock. So let's pick up the story now in verse... Uh, well, let me just recap for you from chapter 8, verse 29, as we meet him. Um... Would that this people were under my hand. So this is, um, sorry, let me just make sure here. Chapter 29. Verse 29 of chapter 8. There we go. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Remember, Jeroboam is the nickname that was given to Gideon because it means the ball slayer, basically. Uh, Verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, so a woman he was not married to, uh, was in Shechem and also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech, which means my father is king. So even though he turned down the monarchy, he names his son basically King Junior um, as a way of saying, I know I said I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to act like one. Verse 32, Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah. Um, as soon as Gideon died, verse thirty-three, the people of Israel turned again and hoarded after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Uh, who had, uh, verse thirty-four, the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. They did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So that's where we find ourselves now. Gideon is dead. Um, His 70 sons are around, but the summary statement is that the people of Israel did not act in good faith towards Gideon for all that he had done for them by liberating them from the Midianites. And tonight we're going to look at two hazardous conditions to avoid when following leaders. Uh, We all have to follow leaders in various capacities in our lives, and we're going to look at these two hazardous conditions. One is the uh, ambitious Abimelech syndrome. And secondly, foolish follower syndrome. So let's read about the ambitious Abimelech syndrome in verse 1. This is chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you? or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf to the ears of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And All the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So just stop there for a moment. This, some of this might need some uh, explanation. So a c- couple of things. One is we learn here so Abimelech this is what happens Abimelech goes to Shechem remember um, Jeroboam uh, Gideon has this affair with this concubine and he's born there and so he goes and says look now that Gideon's gone um, his 70 sons are kind of the royalty that are ruling our clan and our region why would you want 70 people ruling over you when you could have one and that one is related to you so he starts with his family and he kind of plants the seed that he should be the king now just the word king also I want you to remember This would not be the king of all of Israel, like the first king was Saul, and then David and Solomon, and then the kingdom split, etc. But in those days, you would have little, um, what we would call fiefdoms, really, like little kingships, basically the mayor of a city or of a region. And so that's what he's vying for here. He wants to be that guy. Everyone's kind of, uh, in Israel at the moment, there's no king. Remember, there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone's kind of ruling themselves. Uh, It's It's chaos politically and he wants to kind of elevate himself um, to the position but now he can't do that because of all the people in Gideon's family he is the illegitimate one so Gideon had many wives and any of their children could have become his successor as the ruler but they all were deciding not to but he wanted to be but he doesn't really have a rightful claim as long as they're alive If they all die, well, then he's the only relative of Gideon that's left. So he goes to his other family and says, Hey, um, those people aren't even bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh like I am. So they're like, yeah, this is a good idea. And he gets all the leaders on his side and he gets this little faction. And then he gets them to sponsor him. So they give him money out of the temple of Baal. So people have been tithing to the idol. He gets the idol's money um, and uses that to hire a mercenary army. Of, I like how uh, DSV just says, worthless and reckless fellows. <laughs> and they follow him. And what he does with this group of mercenaries, this little army, is he goes and he um, kills all of his half-brothers. And um, it says that he did it all on one stone, meaning that it, he, he rounded them up and then executed them. So this is just a very violent guy he's sort of this godfather character you know just wiping out all of his his enemies and so people are going to fear him and he's taking leadership in that way um also just another thing that you should know about numbers in the bible this is a very general statement but you notice that it keeps talking about his 70 sons but we know that abimelech isn't in that number so there's actually 71 and we find out that he you know kills the 70 sons but not Jotham so he actually killed 69 so just know that whenever you're talking about numbers in the Bible they very frequently unless they are enumerating something very specific they just speak in round numbers kind of like we do you know I wouldn't say well this morning's attendance was you know 256 people if you count that little one it's 56 and a half you know that's not how we talk we just say there were about 250 people you know you kind of find that number so that's going to make sense of that a little bit more because they keep talking about the 70 that are killed but there's this one that isn't okay Um, So that's where we find ourselves. Now you've heard it said probably that anybody who is intelligent enough and morally virtuous enough to run for president of our nation is probably also somebody who is intelligent enough and virtuous enough to not want to run for the election, right? So we're kind of left over with all the people that shouldn't be in charge of us running for that because the people who are actually would make great leaders, well, they're actually busy doing things and contributing to society, and they don't want to leave all of that and get into the mudslinging of being president. And that's sort of what you see here. You see the the people, the, the person who's least worthy to be in charge ends up being in charge, and it's all just because he happens to be related to Gideon and because he's manipulative and violent enough. So often people that end up ruling us are people that are there because of a political dynasty that they're born into, they're well connected, they have money, they're good at manipulating, deceiving, or intimidating people. And here we have Abimelech, and he's got this chip on his shoulder because he's the illegitimate child, and so he kills all of his brothers. He's had a hard life, he seizes on this opportunity, he capitalizes on his father's fame, and he hires this hit squad of mercenaries and wipes out his family this is not a unique story uh, you know you've seen this in Macbeth you've seen it in the Godfather you've seen it in places like that in history and even in current events in African politics a violent coup d'etat is just the regular you know operation normal modus operandi that's how people do things in parts of the world so Abimelech's tactics they're not shocking to us in the book of Judges we expect this kind of anarchy in the book of Judges um, where there's no king in Israel But what is shocking is when this ambitious Abimelech syndrome is found in a church. There's no place for this in the church. We understand that in the world, this is how people operate. This is how they take charge. It's the survival of the fittest. It's the strongest. It's a dog-eat-dog world, every man for himself. And people will literally end up killing each other for power and prestige and fame and fortune. But it is not to be so among us in the church. And so my question for you is do you suffer from an ambitious Abimelech syndrome? Do you love to put yourself first? And covet the preeminence. Speaking badly about those in leadership and building factions in the church. I'm so thankful that ours is a church that is, is not um, privy to that at this point. But we're always vulnerable. We always need to be on guard because that's how Satan loves to sow discord in churches. Is to have individuals... Uh, who get infected with ambitious Abimelech Syndrome, and they feel like they know better than the rest of the church and the leadership. Charles Spurgeon said of young preachers that they should not ask to preach, but they should wait to be asked. He said, an ambassador who has not been sent is laughable. No man can appoint himself steward of the mysteries of God any more than he can appoint himself the steward of the Marquis of Westminster and start dealing with his properties. And you see the aged Apostle John writing in um, his letter, 3rd John, he calls out a guy by name. You know who I'm talking about? Remember Diotrephes? 3rd John 9, uh, John says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, or as the NASB says it, loves the preeminence, does not acknowledge our authority. So he's saying, there's a guy in your church that doesn't acknowledge the authority of the Apostle. Because he loves to be first. So, if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. There was a person who was so threatened by um, other people in the church and the apostle and the apostle's authority that he wouldn't accept Christians from other churches coming in. And if you invited one of the other Christians into your home, he would put you out of the church. This is how cults operate. Cults don't allow influence from outside. They don't recognize the authority of the apostles. And so it's all because of this desire for preeminence. Diotrephes was rejecting the authority of the apostles and gossiping against the leaders. And so John calls them out by name. In Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus said this, speaking of the religious leaders of the day, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These were marks in their clothing that showed that they were religious leaders. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. These are people who love their titles. They love to be called teacher. I really am thankful that among Baptists it has recently fallen out of fashion to call their leaders reverend maybe some of you still remember calling your pastor reverend Um, it's just a strange title Spurgeon said the words reverend and sinner are two concepts that don't sit well together and um, I've been corrected sometimes when I've been speaking to a, a leader in ministry and they'll correct me and say actually my title is whatever it is you know his right reverend blah blah whatever actually I'm doctor you know actually I'm And you just kind of want to roll your eyes at the person and say, you know that there's actual Bible verses against what you just did? (laughs) Um, And that Jesus condemns people who love to be called by their title and love to show their honors. And and It's this ambitious Abimelech syndrome. It's people that have a chip on their shoulder about something and want to be elevated. They love the preeminence. I like that among Baptists we call um, our leaders pastor, because a pastor is a, a, it's a humble term, it's, it, it's a blue-collar shepherd worker whose job it is to feed the sheep, it's not a position of honor, it's a position of servanthood, this is why Peter wrote to his elders saying um, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly and not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 and 3. So you might still have this question, well, how, do, how is it that bad leaders get into power? Well, we see with, in history here, we see examples of people just taking the power by force. But in churches, it doesn't really work that way. It's not like you, know, you want to be uh, an elder, so you kill the other elders you kill everybody until you're the only male left and you're like, okay, I will make you an elder. Like, that's not going to work. People will probably not make you an elder. So how do these people get into leadership in the church? And the answer is, it has a lot to do with the followers. It has a lot to do with the people who are willing to recognize the authority of somebody who doesn't deserve that authority, who shouldn't have it, that they're not qualified biblically. And so really, you, you go to some of these churches where you just think, how does, how does a a pastor that bad, keep his job. And then you meet the people in the church, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's why. That's what they want. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're putting up with. And so you can tell a lot about a leader by the caliber of his followers. And Abimelech, yes, he's in power, and he has followers, but guess who they are? Worthless and reckless followers that he had to pay to follow him doesn't say much for his leadership. Let's see what the text tells us. Let's move on to these followers. This is the second point. The first hazardous condition is the ambition syndrome. But here's the foolish followers syndrome as well. Let me read from verse 6 to 21. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And when it was told Jotham he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Okay, so what's happened now is after this raid where he wipes out all of the rivals, he misses one. One of the sons of Gideon, Jotham, escapes. And these people, I mean, you've got to ask yourself, like, how dumb must you be to want this guy, Abimelech, to be your leader. After he does what he does. The kind of person that's willing to kill his own brothers. and But, but they do. They make him, they recognize him as their leader. And so this guy, Jotham, um, he goes and stands on top of Mount Gerizim. That's kind of significant because remember, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal are two mountains in Israel where... Um, The the nation, when they came into the promised land, they were divided into two. And some stood on Gerizim and some stood on Ebal. And Ebal, the people in Ebal called out the curses of the covenant. And the people on Mount Gerizim called out the blessings of the covenant. And it's interesting if you actually, I didn't do it this time, but I've done it before. When you go to Israel, you can stand on those mountains and call out. And you can hear each other. And if you call out loudly enough, you can hear all the way down into the valley, all the way down to Shechem. This is quite amazing, the acoustics of that, which is why Moses did it there. So what he's doing now is he's going on that mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the blessings of the nation were supposed to be proclaimed. And here he's proclaiming a parable. And he's, he's by himself on this mountain because, I mean, you can, if people try to kill you, you're gonna, they have a long way to go and they have to climb the mountain you can escape. So he's standing there shouting at the top of his lungs. And you just have to imagine the scene. And, you know, gets everyone's attention. And the whole, you can imagine the town kind of check coming out and looking up at the mountain. And there's this little guy. And, and everyone's shh, sh- sh- And if you're just quiet enough, you can hear him. And he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, telling a story. And this is a great parable that not many people know about. Because it's kind of hidden here in um, Judges. Well, let me read it for you. So, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he says this. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit to go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, into the weed you come reign over us and the bramble said to the trees if in good faith you are anointing me king over you then come and take refuge in my shade but if not let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon okay that's a pretty strange little story um, basically what he's saying here is let me tell you a story about trees that wanted a leader And they go to the olive tree, and they ask him to be the leader. And the olive tree's like, I've got better things to do. I'm being productive. I'm making olives, and olive oil is important. So I don't have time to come and rule over you people because I'm actually doing something worthwhile. So they're like, okay, well, let's ask the fig tree. And the fig tree's like, I'm doing something worthwhile. I'm part of the economy. I'm producing. Okay, let's ask the vine. I'm doing something worthwhile. I'm making wine. Everybody loves wine, gods and men. Like, why would I... Why would I give this up? So they're like, uh, okay, what about the bramble? You know, the tumbleweed. The, the, this bush of thistles. Why don't you come rule over us? And of course, the weed's like, I got nothing better to do. I'm a weed. You know, I'm not making anything that's helping the economy or contributing to society. I'm completely worthless. I'm completely useless. Sure, I'll rule over you. But even the, even the bramble says, only if you're doing this in good faith. If you, if you deserve a good leader, he's saying, I will be a good leader for you if you deserve a bad leader, then, and then Jotham pronounces this curse may fire come out of the bramble, this weed that you've put over yourselves to devour you so it's kind of a weird story, but um, you get the point the point here is that of the 70 men that you could have chosen to rule over you they weren't ruling over you because they were actually busy being good people getting on with doing what needed to be done. They didn't want to leave that in order to go and just make themselves a king. They were functioning as family men and contributing to society. And, and now you have chosen the worthless guy, the guy that can't get a job, the guy that can't keep a family, the guy, the loser guy. You've chosen him, the bramble, the weed, and of course he wants to be your leader because he's, not, he's got nothing better to do. And if you... Deserve a good leader, may he be a good leader to you. But, of course, Jotham's saying, you just killed my whole family, so if you don't deserve a good leader, may you get what you do deserve. How do you think it's going to go with Abimelech? Based, um, I mean, uh, yeah, based on, on that. One commentary put it this way, the major point of Jotham's parable was that only worthless people seek to lord it over others. For worthy individuals are too busy in useful tasks, to seek such places of authority Um, so he goes on how far did we get there Um, verse 16 now therefore if you acted in good faith and integrity he's kind of interpreting his own parable for them uh, when you made Abimelech king and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem. You know, he's kind of Jotham's kind of... This isn't even one of his wives um, because you are his relative. Verse 19, If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother, who was now going to hunt him down. And we're not going to get to the rest of the story tonight because it's, I want to I leave it for you. It's kind of like after, you know, Act 1 and Act 2 in Macbeth, you're sort of like, well, how is Macbeth going to die? You know, you get to Act 4, and it says, don't worry, you're not going to die. He goes back to the witches, and the witches tell Macbeth, you're not going to die until the forest comes to you. And we know that's impossible. And you're not going to die anyway, because the only one that can kill you is somebody who's, uh, no man born of woman can kill you. And so Macbeth's like, well, forests don't move, and everyone's born of woman, so I'm safe. And then you kind of like, How is Shakespeare going to make this all work together? That's the feeling I want you to have. How's this going to play out? And I'm referring to Macbeth on purpose, by the way, because uh, Shakespeare got his idea for a scene for Macbeth from the next part of the passage. I'm just building it up so you come back next week, you know. But um, anyway, let's talk about the strain of this disease, foolish followers syndrome. I've been asked before in a public Q&A, why do people follow pastors whose teaching is so obviously wrong? Isn't that a question that's just a great question? You think, why do people follow? When you hear just terrible, unbiblical interpretations that are are clearly false, you think, why do people sit there and listen to this? Why do they keep coming back week after week? And the short answer is, because people like being deceived. They like it. They prefer the error because it suits them better than the truth. You've heard sometimes preaching from this pulpit. Any of the people that preach in this pulpit will say things that are convicting. Have you ever sat in the pew and heard the preacher say something and feel guilty? The Word of God says this. That's not what I do. I feel bad about that. Good. That's a good feeling to have because you're not perfect, right? So if you're not perfect and you come to a good church long enough, you're going to hear that you're not perfect. You're going to... The Holy Spirit is going to find that little nook and cranny in your life that needs light shed on it. And when that happens, you're going to feel, oh, I don't do that the way I'm supposed to. Oh, I didn't think that the way I'm supposed to think. Oh, I need to do that better. That's good. That's called conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you don't like that feeling, then you're not going to go to a church where you keep getting that feeling, right? But guess what? Christians love that feeling of conviction because Christians want to be like Christ. They want to become more like Christ. Because I love Jesus and because I want to please Him and because I want to worship Him, when I find out that I'm not doing something the way I should that pleases Him, I have a compulsion in me to repent of that and to do the right thing for His glory. And that compulsion doesn't come from me. That comes from the Holy Spirit in me. Now, if I don't have the Holy Spirit in me because I'm not a real believer and I find out that I'm doing something wrong that I want to keep doing I don't like that so I'm gonna go and find a place where I don't hear that stuff I'm gonna go find a place where every Sunday I can come and be told you are just wonderful you're good the way you are God loves you no matter what you do you know you can sleep with your girlfriend you can gossip about people you can steal stuff from work you can be a horrible husband you can have an affair and you're still gonna go to heaven And all the people are like, let's pay this guy more. This is fantastic. I get to go to heaven, I get to feel good, and I get my sin. This is the foolish follower syndrome. It's bad enough that you have these ambitious Bimelech leading congregations, but the, the fault lies with the people. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. There's going to be times that what you say is accepted. There's going to be times that what you say is unacceptable. But I want you to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I want you to tell people what they're doing wrong. And I want you to exhort them and encourage them to do the right thing and do it with patience and do it over time. That's what he's saying. Verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't put up with it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. That was a prediction made by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, and boy, have we seen that played out in history. People don't want to endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear it got these itching ears. They want tickled by the pastor. They, they want. They want to. They want to feel good. They want to feel encouraged. And so they will wander off into myths. They will wander off into erroneous teachings that suit their passions. And this. This is. This is not only the Joel Osteen's and the Benny Hinn's and the Joyce Myers of the world. This happens in in churches in our city. This happens in churches today in in our own denomination. I have a friend who is in a church and he was preaching for the, the senior pastor was away and he was asked to preach. And he preached just the way I do. Read a text, explain the text, and it was a text that had some convicting message in it. And people in the church complained to the senior pastor that the, the message was convicting. They felt it made them feel guilty. And so the senior pastor calls him in and says don't want you to preach sermons like that anymore. Because you're upsetting people in the church. People who are sinning, doing the sin that the Bible says not to, don't want to be told in church that they're sinning. So I want you to be quiet. I told him, you need a new church. You need a new job. Because you can't just kill this guy, which would be great. You know, in the book of Judges you could do that, but you can't just kill the bad guy. In fact, even in, in the book of Judges you see the good guys aren't killing the pe- those people. It's the bad guys that are. So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Candering to their people. So, application for us. Don't be an ambitious Abimelech. Also, don't be a foolish follower. Don't prize leadership that delivers on your felt needs. Prize leadership that develops on your delivers on your real needs. What are your real needs? Whatever the Bible says you need. And sometimes, friends, that's a rebuke. Sometimes it's an encouragement, sometimes it's comfort, but sometimes it's reproof. So how do you make sure that you get the right leaders? Well, you compare them to what Scripture says. First, First Timothy chapter 3 gives a list of qualifications. They're character qualifications. And respect leadership that meets your biblical priorities, the needs of your biblical priorities. Now, there's one passage I just want us to end on. Um, You can turn there to Matthew chapter 20. It might not be a passage at first that you think is closely linked to what's happening here with the Bimelech, but I believe it is. Um, Because this is is an application for parents tonight. And the broad application from this text is that we need to... We need to have biblical priorities in our leaders. Our leaders need to have biblical priorities for us. But as parents, we also need to instill biblical priorities for our children. We need to have the right priority for our children. And in our society and in our culture, it's normal to encourage ambition and the pursuit of success And fame and glory and power in a material sense success at the expense of the biblical priorities of character and going to church and reading and knowing your Bible and obeying that. And we see just a little glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 20. In verse 20, this is what happens. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons... and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So this is his apostles, James and John... and their mom, and they come together... and they kneel before Jesus... and she has a request on behalf of her boys. What's her ambition for her boys? Verse 21. Um, He said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So this is what she's asking for. She's asking for a guarantee from Jesus that of all the 12 apostles, her two sons will have the two preeminent spots in the kingdom. She's leaving it up to him to decide which one's on the right and which one's on the left. But I want my boys to be the top dogs in the kingdom. Now, one thing I'll give her is this is a mother who has faith that there's going to be a kingdom. So that's good. And she has the type of priority that is normal for moms and dads. You want your kids to do well in life, you want them to be the best that they can be. That's what you want for them. But Jesus says to her, verse 22 You do not know what you're asking. And he kind of looks to the boys and says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? He means drink the cup of the suffering he's about to go through for his exaltation. They said to him, we are able, because they have no clue what he's even talking about. He said to them, well, he kind of looks into the future and sees that they do actually die from persecution. You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared for by my father. Okay, so that's kind of the, no, you don't get that. That's not, up, that's not even up to me. He's very gentle with him, actually. But then this is what happens. Verse 24. When the ten heard it, the other apostles, they were indignant at the two brothers. So Jesus calls them all together. Jesus called them to him and said, here's the lesson. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see how Jesus just turns upside down the whole worldly priority system? The whole system of "I want to be great, I want success, preeminence, power, recognition," and Jesus says, "That's how unbelievers think. That's how unbelievers think. That's how they live their lives." But I don't want you to think that way. I want you to serve one another. I want you to strive for humility. Be be somebody who contributes. Be somebody who adds to the lives of others, somebody who's edifying, somebody that when you join the church, the church does better. Don't be a drain on the church. Don't don't use the church as a stepping stone to get your little platform going. When you join, if you show up at the family, you're the one that's going to do the dishes if you show up at the family dinner. You're the one, you go to, in the dorm room, you're the one that's encouraging the people who are um, stressed about exams you, you know when, when there's a crisis going on you're the one that's bringing biblical truth into it when someone needs counsel you're the one that takes out of your time to counsel them. Like, be that person be somebody who has a heart for others focus on others serve others and the most worthy leader that has ever existed Jesus Christ himself did not come to be served by people isn't that amazing he came to serve people So who do you think you are that you want to be in a position that other people look up to when Jesus himself didn't do that? That's the lesson there. The lesson for moms, the lesson for dads. What do you want for your kids? It's totally normal to want them to function well in society and be successful. But I would just challenge you. Don't create little ambitious Abimelechs who are willing to step on other people, who are willing to be selfish, who are willing to be wicked and sin in order to get to the place that you've taught them is a good place to get to. Don't teach your children to sacrifice the things that God wants from us for the things that the world wants from us. And here in Jesus' humility, we also see the culmination of the promise of the book of Judges. The problem with the book of Judges is that there's no king in Israel, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We keep getting told that throughout the book. And every leader that comes, he's a man of faith, but he has these foibles. He has these problems. We've seen that with all of the judges so far. Eventually, we're going to get to the kings, and we're going to see that with Saul. We're going to see that with David. We're going to see it with Solomon. We're going to see it with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And you're going to see it all the way through. And every single leader that these people have is a disappointment. Because it's aiming for the real leader. The king of the Jews. The son of David. The one that we are all to look to. And he is going to put all things right. If it weren't for Jesus in our lives, we would be the book of Judges. We wouldn't know what is right and wrong. And we wouldn't have anyone to guide us, but we have a shepherd and we have a king in Jesus Christ. So let's be like him. And let's, let's be an example to others in the way that we follow him and in the way that we encourage our children to grow up and the, way that, that we, the things that we're ambitious for. We should be ambitious for humility like our king was. John Montague had a title, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, but he had no virtue. Christ wants us to have virtue but forego the title. And that's what we learned from Abimelech so far. Come back next week for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder uh, that we need to be faithful followers of our King Jesus, that we need to recognize him as our, our leader and as our model. I do pray for us who are parents that you would help us to instill in our children biblical priorities, that we would have biblical priorities for them, that we would want for them that they would turn out to be like Christ rather than like what the world says is worthy of honor. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to serve, for giving your, your life as a ransom for many so that we could be saved. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.